This comes back to the problem of why can't miners learn to code? I think the skills problem is not a supply problem. People in Barnsley don't learn to code or don't go and get high things because they make rational choices on the basis of what the economic opportunities are that are available to them there. So Good afternoon, Shvita. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, Jack. It's been a long, hot AI summer. First thing to say is that it has been a while since our last episode, but yes, it has been in that while, totally consumed by discussion about AI. Yes, it has been nice to take some time off and get some rest and rejuvenation. I went to Kenya, which was amazing, and I made some progress on my book, and I spent a lot of time talking about AI, avoiding talking about AI, (laughs) reading about AI, avoiding my life being completely consumed by AI. I imagine it's so weird, not just to be a scholar of technology and society, but to have expertise when it comes to large language models and to have studied them and to have issued a report a long time ago now, you know, April of 2022 to then see the world discover them, the kind of complexities, to worry about the ways in which powerful voices are shaping the conversation. You have the big players, the big tech companies driving the conversation, at least in the US. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said, okay, I'm going to focus this on AI and we've got I'm going to come out with legislation. And apparently... They're doing every week, they're having seminars and workshops for all the staff to teach them about AI. And I've been having conversations with congressional staff. And then Chuck Schumer releases a list of the first set of people that they're going to invite to talk to them. And it's all the tech bros and like very few people who are thinking critically about technology. And I'm like, so then what exactly are you going to regulate? What knowledge are you going to have except for all of these conversations about existential risk? Meanwhile, not to bore people with universities, although I think it's really interesting, the university's hair is on fire in different ways. You have one set of people whose hair is on fire because they are afraid that All of these innocent students now with the opportunity of large language models are all going to plagiarize like uh, University of Michigan came out with its own chat GPT. I mean, it is madness. It's madness. I think the madness is partly because, you know, at least back in the day when we were talking about biotechnology, we could sort of all agree on what we were talking about. Here, everybody's talking about AI. There's a sort of AI everywhereism, but... When you and I talk about AI, it's clear that it's a very different sort of thing from when the tech bros are talking about AI, because they're imagining the technology in some ways that suit them. They're imagining, as you say, the risks in really, really peculiar ways. I mean, I've been totally, totally consumed by AI this summer. I'm far less good at avoiding it. I'm now part of a giant publicly funded program which calls itself Responsible AI, which is with a really nice team of sort of mostly computer scientists and social scientists working together. And we're sort of the non-existential risk folks 
in the British research community, which is great. And I'm really excited about starting that piece of work. But just as that work was announced back in June, this was by the Prime Minister, also announced were a bunch of initiatives that had clearly been captured by a very narrow range of the wannabe Silicon Valley interests. So we now have this giant summit planned. The PM back in June committed to a big summit on AI, trying to find Britain's role post-Brexit in technology and trade, has promised to do this thing. And then to all of our surprise said, right, we've got a date for it. It's going to be the 1st and 2nd of November. And we were like, oh, wow, because those of us that have been talking to people within government sort of knew that government still had a lot of blank pages on its screen. So there will be a summit. What that means, we don't know. It could be about security and at least be quite focused, or it could be an absolutely bonkers sort of discussion about what to do when they switch on Skynet. Who knows? This point you're making about the fact that we don't necessarily all know what we're talking about, or we're all talking about potentially different things, I find really fascinating and important. It all certainly resonates with the experiences that I've had. I mean, I was just speaking this week to a Senate staffer, and this is a Senate staffer who we trained, you know, um, who was a research assistant with us. So thank is asking some of the right questions and is saying to herself, like, this conversation doesn't smell right to me. And in particular, the sort of, wait a second, aren't there disparate impacts? Aren't we using these things already? And I said, yes, we are. The AI is already been integrated in these problematic ways. We already know about some of the impacts. And so then... It sounds like in the UK, as in the US, to then have this strange kind of blue skies, what will the impacts be conversation acts like we don't know anything and there isn't real harm occurring right now. The easy explanation for it is that that conversation is a really convenient one for groups that are already changing the world to say, yes, we want a regulatory discussion. I mean, we talked about it back at the start of the summer. This has been Sam Altman's strategy since day one, even though he might not recognise that it is his strategy because, you know, maybe he's being naive, maybe he's being deeply Machiavellian, I don't know. But it's, you know, the effect of it is to kick the ball into the long grass just as governments around the world did with climate change back in the 1990s to say, yes, we should worry about this. Okay, you go away and research it and ask yourself these questions rather than actually act now to mitigate things that we already are reasonably certain about. What you're talking about reminds me of another conversation I had, again, with a sort of pretty high-level policymaker this summer, who, when I was talking about serious regulation, asked me about China and basically said, well, if we regulate, they don't regulate, then they'll win. And I was just like, shocked. I shouldn't have been shocked, given that I call myself an expert in the politics and policy related to innovation. (laughs) But I was shocked at how these old tropes reassert themselves, you know, you could have inserted anything there, right? It didn't have to be AI. It was the same old, oh, well, innovation is good. Regulation is bad. Because, you know, you're making all sorts of assumptions about China and all sorts of assumptions about the technology, you know, its utility, what China wants. And yet it's being 
replicated in problematic ways, in ways that are ultimately damaging for us. Which reminds me that another thing that happened over the summer is the release of the Oppenheimer movie. Oh, yes. Maybe a topic for another episode, but, you know, the coincidence of people talking about existential risk and the movie, and we might say that people like Jeff Hinton have a sort of form of Oppenheimer complex, and it, the way that AI got partly, you know, Christopher Nolan was encouraging that by talking about AI and technologists and responsibility and all those good questions that are raised by the story. But there is something, I think, about AI, the community, the questions that they've historically asked that does sort of go some way to explaining why we're having such a weird conversation. So a month ago, I published a piece in Science about the trouble with the Turing test. And then a week after that, the government announced that it was going to hold this big summit at Bletchley Park as a sort of geographical nod to Alan Turing, who was the most famous labourer at Bletchley Park back in the Second World War. Do you want to remind listeners what the Turing test is? The Turing test was Alan Turing's way to get round what he saw as a rather weird discussion about what counts as intelligence. And he wanted to know, you know, at what point do we say that AI is a thing? At what point do we say that computers can display intelligence? And so he devised this sort of thought experiment where he said, you get some computers and you ask them to differentiate between responses from a computer and responses from another human being. And computer scientists have argued back and forth about this. And I was making the argument, I sort of had a rant in this science piece, that that's just when it comes to a question that's useful for society about a new technology, that is just hopeless. And some computer scientists will admit that that's hopeless, and yet it has contributed to a framing of the debate in which AI is seen as a battle between human intelligence and robot intelligence, rather than a classic you know, the domain of politics is humans versus humans, I guess, I guess you could say. But the idea that genuinely computer scientists see the issue as the constituencies, we humans against them machines, which has just taken us down some really weird blind alleys. So my suggestion was that instead, we need to go back to the computer scientist, Joseph Weizenbaum, who was asking throughout the 70s when it came to AI, he was saying, it doesn't really matter whether these things are intelligent or not. What matters is, are they good? Are they safe? Are they useful? And are they kidding people into thinking that they're intelligent when in fact they're not? So I was sort of doing a bit of this history, but it's weird. You know, these computer scientists have very little experience a lot of the time with those sort of discussions about technology policy. So they're coming to this fresh and sort of working it out using their own tools. And often their own tools are inadequate. But their own tools had extraordinary power. I mean, if you look certainly in the United States, I mean, of course, you have the famous 2001 movie, since we're on talking about movies, so many of the articles that I see about how to assess or to assemble our fears around AI are based on this question about how intelligent are they? Are they more intelligent than us? If they are more intelligent than us, then the following. And, you know, as you said, that is completely framing the public conversation and leaving a bunch of things off the table, unfortunately. 
another thing that happened a few weeks ago. A lot of argument about Fukushima, the nuclear accident that happened, I think, 12 years ago now, but is continuing to have echoes in Japan and the Far East. And in particular, the sort of new thing is that we had the amusing sight of the Japanese cabinet gathered round a table eating fish that had been taken from the sea around Fukushima, which for those of us that remember stories about mad cow disease, where we had the British Secretary for the Environment at the time feeding his daughter a beef burger. Not very successfully, as I recall. No, she was too young. She spat it out. And um, <laughs> the whole thing was just deeply weird. In that case, famously, they were reassuring us that beef was safe when it actually was definitely not. There's the US version a few years ago of Obama drinking the water in Flint. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, of course, we've talked a lot about Flint, and we interviewed Ben Pauly a couple of years ago about his wonderful book on the Flint water crisis in that case, of course, as well. Yeah, the sort of performative risk assessment through personal consumption. Yeah. You might even draw the conclusion that if politicians are eating the food slash drinking the water, you should stay really far away from it. (laughs) So I'm not sure that it's going to be that helpful for that reason and many others in the case of the water from the nuclear reactor at Fukushima. I understand that it's a very difficult set of issues and there are lots of uncertainties, but it is in those spaces where there are lots of uncertainties about the risk that the water poses and also about risks that the water poses to humans, but also to the water ecosystem. You know, a lot of the responses have been, listen, we don't know anything about the ocean ecosystem and we need to stop dumping things in there, assuming that it's fine. It's fascinating because this is another case where there's a convenient framing, which is that this is about public ignorance and misunderstanding of science, which is what leads to politicians, these displays. But here, there is a scientific controversy as well. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty. There are, of course, different kinds of value judgments embedded in the different solutions. I was listening to this very interesting discussion the other day about the other options. I mean, you could encase these things in concrete, but that creates different kinds of problems. There's also really interesting, I heard when I was listening to this, the scientists they were talking to said, you know, if you look at the cooling ponds that nuclear reactors regularly use, that doesn't affect the wildlife. So that should be essentially the basis upon which we should assume it won't affect sea life. That's what's so interesting, right? You can sort of see the frustration of the nuclear scientists who have, at Fukushima, built up this gigantic amount of water that they've been using to cool their dying reactor to keep it safe. All of this water, and they, according to the thing I read, there's something like a thousand swimming pools full of water being stored that they need to find something to do with. They might appeal to the regulations that say the amounts of radiation are well below what has been agreed as a safe level for decades and decades and decades. They might say it's less than the amount that you would commonly find in a banana or maybe in seawater already. And they might make these appeals to sort of rationality, but they are in the middle of a gigantic trust problem. And the idea that you can answer a trust problem 
by making claims to compliance with regulation. It just won't work because, to be honest, they fucked up so badly with how they handled the Fukushima disaster, which we should remind people was not like a Chernobyl disaster in that, as far as we can tell, you know, it's really hard to say anybody died of radiation exposure in the immediate aftermath of the nuclear accident. But the political echoes of Fukushima were absolutely vast. Not only did it change Japanese politics, it changed Germany because of their politics at the time. It declared an immediate cancelling of its nuclear program. You could argue that it has forced the nuclear field to explore these small modular nuclear reactors, so to really kind of transform the way that it thinks about technological development. They're stuck. Have some sympathy for the policymakers and the engineers who are like, well, how do we reassure people? In this most recent case, China, I think, banned Japanese imports. And I guess the Chinese would say we're trying to keep our population safe. The Japanese would say, no, this is just a trade war using this as an excuse. We had all of those arguments happen around genetically modified crops as well, where people were saying the risk is being used as cover for naked politics. So it's a really difficult, really interesting thing. And just looking at these poor politicians sat around a table eating fish, trying to reassure people. I mean, I think we can be a a little bit amused. Yeah, oh, we should. There are serious issues at stake. I am amused, however. I also find it so funny that the behaviors don't seem to change. That is quite fascinating. It's like, let's get out that old playbook and, and just go through it, assuming that that's going to work and perhaps not taking the lessons from the past. But anyway, I want to talk about something. I'm going to do something I think rare for both myself and the show, which is to be optimistic about innovation. Be optimistic. I'm going to bring you down. Don't you worry. Oh, no. So I want to say something about the Chandrayaan 3 Luna rover. Just a few weeks ago now, India was the first country to land a rover on the South Pole of the Moon, which is, I think... Interesting, analytically interesting. I sure hope somebody's out there studying the social and political dimensions of all of this. And it's fascinating from a geopolitical perspective as well. I mean, we don't like to think about countries like India to be the ones leading the way when it comes to matters of science and technology. And I was talking to someone in India a couple of days ago, and they made a couple of points, which I thought was fascinating, right? So the first thing, of course, is that there's this very significant national excitement rallying around this extraordinary achievement. This is not the first achievement of India's space program. You know, it has been making great strides in recent years. But he made another point, which I thought was really interesting, which is that nowadays it would be problematic if you were to ignore India when it comes to matters of science and technology. But generally, even if we don't know it, we're talking about the Sundar Pachais of the world, the people who went to the Indian Institutes of Technology, who are men, who are leading the big tech companies around the world. And this is a case where the folks involved didn't go to the fancy universities in India or elsewhere. A large percentage of them are women. Some of you will remember the initial moon landing a few years ago. You had all these images of Indian women in saris who were the heads of major departments in the Indian Space Research Organization, the same as the case now. So all of that is super fascinating. 
to me, I'm also interested in sort of what does this mean for Modi's fortunes going forward? The other dynamic here is that as with the previous missions, they did it cheaply. So this is what seems so interesting. It appears it's not just a space race, which suggests that India are trying to catch up. But here is a country that appears to have taken a different approach, right? And we might say a different trajectory of innovation. Exactly. Which is really, really interesting in terms of your work. I've been thinking about this. This is hopefully what my next book is going to be about, about the ways that India is is really trying to offer to the world a very different way of thinking about innovation in the public good. And the interesting thing about this is that it's cheap. And the way in which it's cheap is that it's incremental. So, you know, they sort of will make an incremental move in terms of a development, and then they test that, and then they move forward. So there's not as much waste. It is very much against certainly the American approach. Not only do we make grand promises about programs, you know, we're going to go to Mars by 2030, we're going to have these giant goals, we're going to put a man on the moon. But the language, the space-related framing is used elsewhere. So we have the Cancer Moonshot Initiative in the U.S. If I recall, during COVID, the U.K. also used that kind of moonshot language to talk about the development of testing infrastructure. Including some of the language against incrementalism. So there has been this story that space folks say, well, you can't build a ladder to the moon, right? You can't do it bit by bit. You need massive new innovations. You need high risk approaches. And that's what sort of justifies the basic research behind something like a moonshot and let along come India and say, no, actually, incrementalism is the sensible and cheap way to get stuff done. Right. And it's even reflected in the way we think about our intellectual property systems are based on the idea that we have an inventive step and we can recognize it. Those are the kinds of inventions that we tend to reward, even though India is arguing that's not the best route that we should take when it comes to innovating, certainly not innovating in these kinds of even giant challenges. So let me ask you the difficult question. So the last time, I think it was when India was proposing or launching some first missions for its proposed Mars program, and some people raised the sorts of questions that had been raised about the Apollo program back in the 1960s, but then also had been sort of erased from the history of the Apollo program. Back in the 1970s, when America was sending missions to the moon, and it became clear that America was spending what would turn out to be $100 billion of public money on these missions, a lot of people were asking whether that was a good use of public money. So we had culturally, we had people like Kurt Vonnegut, who would turn up on TV and say, this is just a massive waste of money. We had Gil Scott Heron, so if people don't know the tune Whitey on the Moon, they should definitely check that out as a sort of cultural artifact. And we had early STS researchers, well, economists, really. Richard Nelson wrote an amazing book called The Moon and the Ghetto, saying how to think about the fact that the US can put a man on the moon but can't solve the problems of its own poorest neighborhoods. Where have those sorts of discussions got to in India, which obviously still has gigantic problems with poverty and 
has the additional thing that America didn't have of the rich world accusing it of misusing its resources in pursuing the sorts of things that the rich world has been able to prioritize in the past. Right. And I should say this, like, I'm definitely a fair weather space enthusiast. <laughs> I am not a space enthusiast in general. And I do wonder, you know, why do we spend all of this money on space, period, anywhere, anyone? I think that that critique, my sense is that it is not coming from within India. It is within India, you know, there's great excitement everywhere, including, as I mentioned, the person I was interviewing a couple of days ago, who works on innovation at the opposite end of the spectrum. And yet it is sort of this great excitement, nationalist excitement, which performs an important social function and not just one that is necessarily about uplifting the prime minister, but rather about bringing people together and their excitement about achieving a goal. And in terms of India's role geopolitically, you know, India has always felt like it is being put down, insulted, discriminated against by the world. You know, it's at this moment where we're going to have the G20 summit. And so it's all coming at the same time where India is saying, listen, we're here and you need to pay attention to us and we matter. And so I think that that's fascinating. India, of course, does have serious poverty and other issues. But I think that I would say a few things. First is, it's not just about money. It's not a money problem. The solving these other problems is, in fact, this shows that it's not a money problem. If you can get to the South Pole of the Moon on the cheap, you can solve all sorts of other problems on the cheap. It is a matter of will. It's a matter of politics. It's a matter of values and priorities and, frankly, racism, other forms of discrimination and, you know, that's the reason we haven't solved those problems in the US. And, you know, it's the same in India. And so, as I said, I think those are serious problems. I'm not sure we should be spending any dollars on the space program personally, but I find it analytically interesting to see how these dynamics are playing out. There is a big difference between $100 million and $100 billion. Yes, there is. I'm no mathematician, but that's, that's a big difference. <laughs> And the space optimists in the US would say that thanks to privatization, we have managed to avoid a very bloated military industrial complex and NASA continuing to spend those amounts of money on going to space. Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting example. And as you say, I hope somebody is looking very, very closely at, at what's going on, because I think there will be so much to learn. Absolutely. So, well, on that note, I mean, it has been a few months. It will not be so long before our next episode. So we'll continue to catch up on things that we missed over the summer. But why don't you introduce our guest for this episode? He's somebody that I've known for a while. I've wanted to get him on the podcast for a while I think he's terrific. Professor Richard Jones, now at the University of Manchester. By background and training, he's a physicist and nanoscientist and has sort of backed into science and technology policy in some really, really interesting ways. And now is one of the most interesting people in Britain, certainly, writing about what Britain's policy options look like going forward. He's particularly interested in things like regional inequalities. Listeners might know that in Britain... Our economy and our innovation system is massively skewed towards the bit of the country that I'm in, the southeast, sometimes called the Golden Triangle between Oxford, Cambridge and London. And Richard Jones 
was at the University of Sheffield, then at the University of Manchester, and has been really influential within government, getting them to think about what has been called the levelling up agenda, trying to address Britain's inequalities and the role that innovation plays in that and the relationships between innovation and democracy. And we hope that you agree it's a great listen. So dive right in. So Richard, welcome to The Received Wisdom. It's great to have you here. It's a great pleasure. You and I go way back. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. It feels like we should have had you much sooner. I guess when we first started talking, you were a physics professor, esteemed fellow of the Royal Society, and at the time interested in debates about nanotechnology, which back then was the next big thing. And you and I had lots of conversations about democratic deliberations, citizens, juries, that sort of thing. And one of the things I've always been interested in with you is your journey from a research scientist to somebody that is now basically you've moved over to the dark side. You are now working on science and technology policy. So can you just talk us through what that journey was and why you thought it was important? As you say, this goes back to the the early 2000s when nanotechnology was an important area of science policy. And so I became interested in it actually from the scientific angle. I became interested because I was seeing these visions of nanotechnology, the more extreme futuristic visions associated with people like Eric Drexler. And from my perspective, I kind of quite appreciated the radical nature of those visions, but I thought technically the way that people were thinking about that was wrong, or at least flawed. So my entry into that business to write a little book about nanotechnology, really arguing that we should think more seriously about how biology works and what the relationship between cell biology and nanotechnology should be. But as you say, it was one of those fortuitous things. This arrived at the very moment when there was suddenly some controversy about nanotechnology. So I got involved in those debates. I really enjoyed talking to social scientists like you and your colleagues and learned a huge amount from that interaction. And I think the next thing that happened to me, I spent a bit of time working for the Research Council trying to run the UK's nanotechnology programme, such as it was, it wasn't actually very ambitious or big, but uh, I enjoyed, I think, taking some of the insights I'd learned from social scientists like yourselves, into thinking about how would you design a program that absolutely took into account some of those ideas about upstream engagement. And so, you know, we did things, I I still think, I'm still quite proud of this looking back, you know, we did a call for nanomedicine where we had, as framing the scope of the call, we involved a classically a science policy approach that would be, you know, you, you involve you ask scientists what is it that they think is possible to do you ask maybe industry people what do you think that the market wants so we added that third dimension of actually saying what would people want from that kind of program and so we ran up some citizens panels and actually found some quite interesting insights and it did change the way that we shaped the program i look back on that with some pride in the 2010s, I became you know, essentially the vice president for research at the University of Sheffield. And there, I was really struck by the paradox that we had so much talk about 
accelerating change, that everything was happening really fast, that change was accelerating. And then if I looked, you know, in my own community or <laughs> indeed in the UK as a whole, you didn't really see that change apart from, you know, obviously there were kind of advances in various bits of consumer technology. But in terms of people's overall well-being, you weren't seeing that change. Sheffield is a former steel city. It suffered very badly from deindustrialization in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it is one of the worst performing big cities in the UK. I thought, you know, what is it about this paradox that we've got that people are telling us that technology is advancing as fast as it ever has. And yet, in terms of economic measures, this isn't being reflected in people's living standards. And I got interested in the economics of growth, the fact that labor productivity is the measure of output per hour of labor. Essentially, in the UK, that fell off a cliff in the global financial crisis of 2008, and it's basically not recovered. And so, you know, that link between technology, innovation, economic growth, it seemed to have stopped working. It stopped working in the UK generally as a nation. We see very profound regional inequality too. So cities like Sheffield and indeed Manchester, my current home, really weren't, you know, it's difficult to argue that technology is, as a whole, as it impacts on people's everyday life, really is accelerating that much. So I moved to Manchester three years ago, and I now actually have innovation policy in my job title. So I moved my job title as a professor of materials physics and innovation policy. And I've taken an administrative role in the university with the title regional innovation and civic engagement. So really, my role in, in the university, Manchester University is a big research intensive university, but it's feels it's important, its connection to Manchester is very important. So my role really is to try and demonstrate the connection between innovation and research, how that leads to innovation, how that can connect to the lives of the 2.8 million people who live in Greater Manchester. There's so much to unpack there, and I really want to get into a, the discussion about those inequalities, about the gap between the story and the reality and how that threatens to undermine the social contract in as much as it exists that underpins the state's investments in science. I wonder, is the story, which is not an optimistic story that you tell, is it a peculiarly British one? Or is this a funk that the whole world is in, in some way? I think it is, you know, in the industrialised countries of the West, it's fairly widespread. I mean, so, so these problems of stuttering productivity growth and regional inequality, they're certainly very much the case in the United States. Similar stories could be found in Western European countries. I think what I'd say is the UK demonstrates the same symptoms as everywhere else, but worse, you know, in terms of productivity growth. The UK's performance has been the worst of any G7 country apart from Italy. Italy has actually been worse. So I think there is something universal going on. I think looking to the United States, there's a relationship between economics and politics, isn't there? And so, so this phenomenon of so-called left-behind communities, deindustrialized cities and towns that have lost their industry base, it's going to be a widespread phenomenon in the Midwest just as it is in the north of England, just as it is in parts of Germany and France too. What I'm fascinated by is that in those deindustrialized places, the narrative is the same, that innovation will somehow fix the problem. And that's a 
not obvious. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about perhaps how you know this, I know in the UK more specifically, but perhaps you have a global perspective on this. Why is it that governments are able to make this case? How do they try to make the case that innovation is going to actually solve the problems of these deindustrialized cities? And what's wrong with that narrative? I think what's wrong with it is that there's a misunderstanding of the way that innovation works and an excessive focus on you know, what you might call a supply-side approach to science policy. So the idea that if you support basic research, if you maybe do a little bit of work to help technology transfer, if you then maybe work a little bit on skills, then magically this will all sort itself out. And the kind of classic example, you know, we don't have to worry about unemployed coal miners in West Virginia because they can all learn to code, the classic answer. And, you know, people said the same thing about uh, coal mining communities in the UK. And I think that, you know, this isn't really how innovation works. Innovation policy scholars always pour scorn on the linear model, and rightly so. But this idea that there's this linear progress from basic science through, you know, you get a few spin-out companies going, then this all turns into uh, marvellous job-creating economic miracles. It doesn't work like that. Nobody, everybody knows it doesn't work like that, but somehow it's still stuck in the way that policymakers think about these things. The trouble is, I think, if you ask me, well, what's the answer? How should you do it? I mean, the answer, I think, is it's really hard and takes detailed, textured work that needs to understand the nature of the economy that you've got and work with that. The classic people in kind of regional economics will point to the many, many examples over the world where people think, well, you know, we'll just build a biotech center and everything will be fine. And I mean, there are probably times when something along those lines have worked, but it seems to me that it needs much more detailed work to kind of understand what's the nature of the economy that you've got, what the endowments that you've got, what can you build on? So, I mean, Dan Bresnitz at Toronto has written a fantastic book on this, which I think is just great. And, you know, another piece of work, Pisano and Sheaf from Harvard wrote, I think, a very important paper about this idea of the industrial commons, that you had to kind of rebuild industrial commons, that a successful economy has got a whole bunch of formal, but also informal institutions that permit knowledge exchange, that allow that spread of tacit knowledge between different firms. So I think those are the kinds of approaches that you need to use when it's obvious that that doesn't work, it's it's obvious to the people in those places that it doesn't work, the narrative continues. And I think that the narrative continues, at least in the U.S., because you have economists driving the narrative as well as business people driving the narrative. And it's surprising to me because you would think that economists would see the data and know that this doesn't pan out. You know, of course, it also ultimately benefits universities and scientists and engineers to some degree. So that makes sense on some level. But the fact that in the U.S., economists have such a primary role in policymaking and yet completely buy into this narrative is what I find a little bit puzzling. And I don't know if there are the same dynamics happening in the U.K. or elsewhere or whether you think something else is going on. Yes, I mean, there are some of those dynamics. And, you know, I should say I've learned a lot from economists I've talked to about this. I wouldn't want to say that the entire discipline is to blame for everything that's gone wrong. But I think economists don't 
understand innovation as well as they would like to, I think it's fair to say. You know, the theory of economic growth has got a lot of giant black boxes with things called total factor productivity on them that sort of conceal the fact that the economists don't really quite understand how this all works. I mean, on the other hand, if I talk about clusters and the industrial commons, you know, people will say, well, that all goes back to Alfred Marshall and he wrote all about this in the late 19th century. So, you know, there's some truth in that too. So I'm trying to kind of not make too many enemies amongst my friends in the economic profession, but I think, you know, there's work that needs to be done in understanding how that works. Very wise. Some of my best friends are economists, etc, etc. Can I ask you, so the linear model that you describe, I mean, one of the things that it does when enacted is put a lot of pressure on universities and researchers to deliver the sorts of things that would normally be seen as the responsibility of actors further downstream. And the late, great Keith Pavitt described it as pushing on a piece of string, that sort of expecting universities to deliver economic returns by injecting more resources into that end of the pipe. It's slightly tricky because the example I want to ask you about directly applies to now your own university. But the one that still perplexes me is graphene. So graphene, a material that was isolated at the University of Manchester, that Nobel Prizes were awarded. There was no doubt that it was extraordinary science, but also attracted the attention of the then Chancellor, George Osborne, a huge amount of excitement about it and the expectation that this could be, you know, the talk was not just great science, but also part of the next industrial revolution, et cetera, et cetera, followed a decade or so later by disappointment that most of the patenting activity, and, you know, Shabita knows better than anybody that patenting activity is not the same thing as economic activity, but most of the patenting activity was happening in places like Korea and very little patenting was happening in Britain. Am I being unfair on graphene? Because it seems as though that was a very naive example where British policymakers expected that just because something, a good piece of science happened in Britain, that Britain was somehow entitled to economic returns that didn't then come. Yeah, no, that's right. And my job description at this point compels me to say that we have got some very cool spin-outs from graphene and we're very excited about putting graphene into concrete and things like that. But I think the general point is right. And actually, I'd probably kind of quite like to illustrate it with another example because it's actually quite close to my own science work and people I've known, which was plastic electronics was something that we thought was going to be a really big deal. It was invented in Cambridge. Well, not entirely invented in Cambridge, but key developments were made in Cambridge. The academic who led that work, Richard Friend, where he's now on his third successful spin-out. In some ways, he's absolutely the model of a scientific entrepreneur. But the outcome of this, his first company was bought by Sumitomo. His second company essentially moved off to Germany. His third company's still going. Hopefully that's going to be successful. But the point is, any discovery fits into a broader ecosystem. So in this case, the areas that those discoveries were addressing was in creating displays for electronic devices. Now, what we learned from that was that where that business is actually going to take root is in places where there's a whole network of other activities that come together to make the product. So liquid crystal displays where people differ about exactly when they were invented, but 
their claims both in the UK and the USA. But that industry took root in the Far East. And once it had took root in the Far East, it was very difficult to create a kind of industry that's basically in the same market that's somewhere else, just because there's huge networks of suppliers, there's huge amounts of expertise and know-how. There are these complicated supply chains that only fit in there. So I think the same is true for graphene. Many of the you know, potential applications for graphene in the electronics industry they're going to find it really difficult to take root in the UK because the UK hasn't got an electronics industry. And so that's the issue. What happened there was as soon as you lose that industry and you lose that complicated network of suppliers, that the expertise that goes in there, the skills, you have to work really hard to get it back. And you can't expect to make a lot of value out of one little bit of it just because you happen to have made the academic advances. One of the kind of really interesting things about Taiwan, many interesting things about Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation is one of the most valuable companies in the world. It's clearly absolutely the most strategically critical company in the world right now because of the geopolitical worries of the relationship between mainland China and Taiwan. And if you go back to how TSMC was formed, TSMC wasn't formed as a spin-out based on a cool piece of intellectual property. It was formed because the Taiwanese government thought that this was a nice industry that they'd like to get involved in. They had a translational research center that was in position to kind of develop the process. And actually, they licensed the process so that this started by them licensing IP and then essentially developing process know-how. You know, just all the complicated stuff about how you manufacture things, that's what they realized they could do. And I think to go back to why the nanotechnology boom never really took place. I mean, one of the really interesting things about when nanotechnology arrived as a thing was it arrived at this moment where people thought you could separate the high value processes of design and research. The manufacturing was something that you could just get someone else to do. But of course, manufacturing is just full of tacit knowledge. The reason why TSMC can make chips that nobody else can make is because you know, they're good at making stuff. And it's fascinating to see how quickly that debate can change, that part of the Chips and Science Act, Shabita can say more about this, is about reshoring some of that manufacturing and questioning the old settlement that rich countries do the innovation and places like China are the factories of the world. I mean, Shabita, can you say a bit about the story behind that? Yes, I mean, of course, it is based in what has now become a marker of much U.S. policy, certainly around science technology, which is China fears. And not only is that the case, what you just said, this sort of idea that we can bring back all of this semiconductor manufacturing, but there has been a suite of articles in recent weeks in the news saying wait a second, we don't have this workforce. And it's not a matter of snapping our fingers and these people emerging. I I really appreciate what you were saying before, Richard, about how there's always been this assumption among economists that whatever industry is declining, well, we can just teach them how to code, or we can teach them how to make semiconductors, or we can create all of these kinds of educational opportunities. And of course, that those are all assumed by the way we think about economic models. But there may be a we will build it and nobody will come kind of dynamic. And I'm really curious 
what's going to happen. Just today, actually, the president of Michigan State University announced that, um, you know, we need to build up all of our educational activities. But like, okay, that's a state university. Maybe it'll be affordable, but who will be able to take those courses? Who will want to take those courses? Is it just a matter of kind of moving pieces around on a chessboard, which it seems like are the assumptions behind this policy? One of the things that, you know, I was asking Richard you about earlier is, that there's not learning from these kinds of moments. And I think it's unlikely that the semiconductor industry is going to be built up in the U.S. in the way that the whole infrastructure is sort of shifting towards, right? We've got the National Science Foundation pouring money. We've got the government in other ways pouring money. What happens if that doesn't work? Are we going to acknowledge that it doesn't work and then go back and refigure out how to manage the various problems that we have socially, economically, strategically in terms of national security? I'm not sure, right? We're just going to maybe act like it did work. I think it could work. I don't think it's a given. I think it's going to be quite hard. You know, the reason why I think it could work is essentially it did work. So, you know, Taiwan did this. Korea did this. A few decades ago, Taiwan was a middling country that kind of made bicycles and sewing machines. And, you know, it successfully transformed itself into the complete center of the world IT hardware industry. So, you know, we know it can be done. And, you know, it's interesting. Taiwan is now, by some measures, it's a richer country than the UK is, which is something I think our policymakers have not at all internalized. I don't know whether it's easier or harder in the US because the US has gone less far down the track of losing its high value manufacturing than the UK has. So, you know, Intel is still a big company. It struggles a little bit, but no one can doubt that there are places in the USA that do have significant high-tech manufacturing hubs, that they have that industrial commerce that makes it all work. So I think things that UK policymakers don't understand People in the UK do not understand how much richer the USA is than the UK. And so the USA, for all its problems, is still a much more successful economy than the UK is. And that's reflected in the depth of company expertise. If I can slightly change the subject here, I think one of the things that we thought were true, but I think we're probably rethinking, was the focus on small companies, the focus on little spin-outs, the, the idea that growth came from small companies that massively grew. I think this underestimates the huge amount of, if you want to see where is tacit knowledge contained, it is in companies like TSMC, and so it is in companies like Intel. The UK has two kind of high-tech companies in the top 100 of R&D spenders, both in pharma, so, so GSK and AstraZeneca are the only two companies in the UK that you can say are top 100 world tech companies. And, you know, the USA still has a couple of dozen of those. And I think that makes a difference. The big change in the landscape in the UK over the last 40 years has been the collapse of large companies with big corporate R&D hubs, as it were. So we had companies like ICI, the major chemical company had companies like GEC in electronics. They fell apart from various management misadventures. I think, and it's difficult to not to connect that to the pursuit of shareholder value and the idea that 
you created value by kind of corporate rearrangements and mergers and acquisitions rather than developing new products and services. And I think, you know, the US suffered from that too. And so big companies in the US that had major R&D operations, there's still some of those. And people will say now, okay, if you say, what's the new Bell Labs? Well, maybe the new Bell Labs is Google a little bit. But nonetheless, you had companies like GE, DuPont, that in some cases are still there, but in terms of the strength of their research efforts, it's much less than it was. So we now have a situation in Britain where we spend a smaller proportion of our national economy on R&D than most other rich countries and a lot of less rich countries. And yet we also have a government that are talking all the time about a science superpower and they talk up historical and maybe current strengths in science. And, you know, that gap appears to just get bigger and bigger. Is the history of science here and the history of scientific success and claims about Nobel Prizes and citations, is that part of the problem with Britain just sort of kidding itself? I mean, I do think there's a problem there. You know, this comes back to a question that you've written eloquently about, which is the pursuit of excellence or this idea of science excellence as something that you want to pursue. And I think the danger of that is that it becomes very self-referential. You know, and again, to go back to nanotechnology, because I think it's a really interesting case study, I do think there's an argument that the kind of academic end of nanotechnology did disappear in a way that it kind of that there's a certain honesty about having to produce a product that works. And it's a little bit paradoxical here because I'm going to argue two things at once. Academic science kind of got a bit removed from the market because, you know, there was a huge interplay between people who work for big firms and people in academic science. You know, I'm a polymer scientist, so, you know, I'm kind of used to talking to people in paint companies or, you know, companies that make things. I think as there got to be that distance between academic science and academic science got more and more devoted to the pursuit of excellence, I think it kind of got unmoored from the stuff that actually does create economic and social benefits. And we've talked more about the economic than the social, but I want to bring you back to your the excellently titled blog post, What a Science Policy Ever Done for Barnsley, because that for me, was a great, one of those focusing of the mind moments where you go, actually, what would it mean to take seriously not just what people in these left behind places were? And you start off that blog post by mentioning that Barnsley voted overwhelmingly for Brexit at that time, which was the political debate that was tearing the country apart. But also, how would science policy get involved in trying to bridge divides between places, try to redress regional inequalities? I think if you ask the economists, they might say, well, that's asking too much of science policy. And actually, what we should do is make sure that fast growing areas are allowed to grow faster and build more houses around Cambridge and hope that the wealth trickles down to places like Barnsley. But you were more ambitious. So can you just say a little bit more about the sort of links between what in Britain is called the levelling up agenda, trying to redress regional inequalities and science policy? One of the kind of things that we've painted ourselves into a corner about actually is the idea of the tech industry. 
the tech industry has been something that's, you know, a very small subsector based on developments in ICT. But, you know, these are modern economies. And in a modern economy, every bit of the economy ought to be a tech economy. People use technology. People use the idea of improvement. In the economy that we got used to in the post-war years, where we had steady growth of 2 or 3% a year every year for over decades, which produced really colossal increases in standards of living, yeah, there were a few kind of big discoveries that were in there, but you know, lots of this stuff is just about how do you make incremental improvements? Why is it that if you buy a car now, it doesn't go rusty in six months, whereas in the 70s it did? There's just a lot of unglamorous development work that is scientifically based. It is done by PhDs. And I've been spending time going around Rochdale and Oldham and Bury recently. Those are the kind of Barnsley equivalents in Greater Manchester, some of the poorest communities in the whole northwest of England. And you go there, there are companies that are doing cool things. You know, you go to a company and it's making something that it's got a world market for. And there's a little lab in the corner with two PhD chemists and an engineer trying to meet the demands of their very demanding customers and doing really cool things. And so I think we've done ourselves a disservice by thinking science is about the shiny things that happen in Harvard or in the Crick Institute or, you know, in Stanford or even in Alphabet or a few tech companies, and it's not what's going on, what ought to be going on every day in firms that are just trying to do their best to make a better product that they can sell. This is just the nature of productivity growth. That's how people get good wages. And I think, you know, it's that kind of rift that we've seen a little bit between high science and the stuff of everyday life, people going to work and doing things a bit better and implementing new technologies that they've seen and automating things a little bit. That's the stuff of a healthy economy. And I think we've allowed that separation to grow a little bit too much. I really appreciate this point that you're making about how places like, you know, Barnsley or Flint or East Lansing in my state are engaged with tech in all sorts of ways and have tech industries. But I'm wondering if you've thought at all about the limits of innovation policy, especially in these kinds of places, or how should we think about the limits of innovation policy? So one of the things I sometimes worry about is that even if we think differently about technology and innovation, that's still putting so many eggs in the basket of technology and innovation may not get us to alleviating inequality or in, in, I guess, UK parlance, leveling up that we want, that maybe what we really need are other kinds of investments and focusing on technology and innovation takes a lot of oxygen out of the room in terms of other things that universities can do, that scientists can do to help societies at the local level. I mean, that, I guess, on some level requires some humility in science and technology. But I'm wondering if you've thought about that at all or how we might think about that. I mean, I think the problems of places that aren't doing so well are manifold. And, you know, innovation, the kind of innovation I'm talking about, certainly isn't the solution to all of them. Again, to go back to Oldham, you know, their problems, it's, you know, healthy life expectancy in Oldham is about 10 years less than it is in southern England. There are huge problems of poor health, keeping people out of the labour market, 
and that's related to poor housing. There's kind of big problems of skills. In a way, I'd say, I mean, why do I focus on innovation? Well, you know, because that's in my job title and <laughs> there are lots of other things that I know are important, but I don't know very much about them. But in a way, I'd kind of push back against the idea that innovation is privileged in these discussions, because certainly in the UK, when people talk about levelling up, they talk about transport, they talk about skills to some extent, and that is something you get a lot from, from the Treasury or from you know, central government policymakers. Is you know, the problem with Barnsley is that skills levels are very poor. And you know, the fact is they are, but this comes back to the problem of, of why can't miners learn to code? I think the skills problem is not a supply problem. People in Barnsley don't learn to code or don't go and get high things because they make rational choices on the basis of what the economic opportunities are that are available to them there. And, you know, there is a little thing here about policymakers and indeed people like us probably are much more used to the idea that we'll up sticks and move to a better job. But it's just a sociological fact that in the UK and I think in many other countries, many people don't want to move far because they've got family and other kind of rooted commitments that keep them in places. So I think, you know, part of this is about thinking about skills as a demand problem that, you know, you need to create the industry and the businesses that demand skills and people will then say, okay, maybe, you know, it's worth kind of staying in college for a couple of years longer. Or, But then this makes it a hard problem because, you know, you've got to do the two things at once. You've got to somehow anticipate what the skills needs are going to be and at the same time do the work that's needed to create the higher productivity, better paid opportunities. It's really interesting, your response, because I think for me, it really betrays some of the differences between the US and the UK. And also, I've been doing some work in India, and I see a really strong innovation narrative playing a big role in terms of a central way in which people talk about improving the lives of people who have been left out. And so in just in my neighborhood in Detroit, a lot of Detroit's fortunes are embedded in this idea that we can create a space for entrepreneurship and innovation and centers for innovation and entrepreneurship. And University of Michigan is heavily involved in that. But at the same time, I'm also reminded that in places like Detroit as well, they also see the downside of innovation. They end up becoming in service of creating a space where innovators and entrepreneurs want to do work. And to make that safe, it then becomes a surveillance city with facial recognition technology everywhere and other kinds of technologies that end up harming some of the already marginalized communities and surveilling them at the same time that we're creating these new economies. So those dynamics, I think, especially obviously in a country that is not known for its social welfare, are quite different. I think those dynamics are quite different. I'd kind of answer by saying, you know, to some extent, you're equating innovation with the idea of entrepreneurs. And I would say, you know, innovation ought to happen everywhere. You know, I don't think someone needs to kind of go off and try and make a spin-out company to be an innovator if they, in the right environment, you know, in ambitious firms of any size that are just trying to make their products better, trying to find new markets, there will be people in those firms who are innovators, but they're not classical entrepreneurs. And I'm not totally sure. There's an argument that I've tried to run. It's not everybody is convinced by it. And I'm not even sure I'm convinced by it, but I'll try it anyway. Communities have 
a sense of purpose that comes from their traditional industries. And I think, you know, there is a bit of an argument that communities that have lost their traditional industry, you know, there's a bit of uprooting because, you know, I think they don't know what's the point of this town anymore. And we did a lot of work in Oldham, but, you know, get some support for that, that, you know, everybody knew what Oldham was for. And now nobody knows what Oldham was for because its economy is, its private sector economy is very weak. If the new economy that you create has got a kind of tangible connection to the old economy that people remember, I think that smooths out the difference. It's the difference between dumping a biotech centre in the middle of Oldham and then importing a lot of PhDs from elsewhere and saying, okay, you have got some textile companies. I mean, I went to a great company. It's just fascinating. You, you know, I went to this company. It's kind of 19th century weaving shed next to a canal. But you go in there and they're weaving carbon fiber and, uh, and Teflon and they're making high-value, high-tech products, but in a kind of environment that somehow seems to fit in that grain of a kind of northern mill town. Thinking about innovation in that way, about what do you do with the kind of the traditions and the endowments of an existing community, but then what new opportunities, new technologies and innovation can provide? I see a future book, Richard, it's something like steampunk innovation policy. You know, I'm very much influenced by that book by Dan Bresnitz, you know, Innovation in Real Places. I think this has a lot of resonance to me in a sense then the point of innovation policy in this context is, you know, essentially it's about you go and find people who are innovating and saying, what are you doing? How can we help you do more of it? Before we let you go, I want to ask you just about one thing. So a few years ago, you had a little flurry of fame because um, Dominic Cummings, when he was then in number 10, got very excited by your work because it seemed, I guess, the conversation that we've been having. There your work better than anybody connects agendas that the government thought were important to do with innovation with those that it recognised were important to do with inequality. And I wanted to ask, how optimistic are you about either this government doing the right thing or, dare I say, a future Labour government this time next year doing the right thing? And I think the positive thing that allowed me to be positive about all sorts of things that many of your friends may not be positive about, the one thing that the current government did do was to raise the issue of regional inequality quite far. The argument being that I think it is now widely accepted that this is a big problem. And I think the analysis is accepted. I think the attitude of the opposition party is quite interesting. It, they could have said, well, levelling up, it was obviously a complete waste of time. Nothing's happened. Uh, but you say, you know, what they've said is, well, actually, you know, it's a good idea, but we'll do it properly, you know, which is positive. I do think it's been a really weird few years politically, hasn't it? And in a sense, we had, you know, the manifesto that the Johnson government was elected on was quite interventionist. It did talk about levelling up. It talked about industrial strategy and regional policy in quite an explicit way. That goes against the grain of some parts of the Conservative Party. You know, there were obvious tensions throughout that absolutely came to a head with the Truss era, if I'm allowed to call 42 days an era. It definitely was not an era. It was barely a weekend. In, in a sense, that was quite salutary, wasn't it? Because that was a very, very, still quite a strong thread in Conservative Party thinking that's absolutely opposed to any of this stuff that just thinks, you know, globalisation, laissez-faire, this is the way to go. And that argument continues. I had a fantastic career 
triumph a few weeks ago when I got into a Twitter fight with Lord Frost on this very subject. <laughs> so the, Hooray! The, I should explain for your listeners, David Frost was the person who negotiated the Brexit deal and is very much, I would say, on the right Brexity of the Conservative Party. But, you know, in a sense that the fact that he thought it was necessary to engage with me actually illustrates that some of those arguments still do have traction in the Conservative Party. And, you know, there are other people in the Conservative Party who are continuing that line of argument. The Labour Party, uh, you know, they've said some very positive things. And I've talked to some of the shadow ministers on this. And I think, you know, they listen to the kinds of arguments I make, which is encouraging. I do think, though, it's the global environment that's really changed. Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, went to the United States and made a speech. Quite significant that she decided to go to the United States to make the speech. But the reason for that is precisely because this global environment has changed so much. So, you know, everybody, we look at the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation and Reduction Act. You know, I'm really impressed by the kind of seriousness of intent when it comes to regional innovation policy and their instruments in that act that I would love to see in the UK with that level of ambition and, and, and scale. So, you know, you've suddenly seen a very different environment in the USA. You see the EU. The EU was not a comfortable environment for industrial policy, industrial strategy for a long time, but we now see the EU desperately scrabbling to respond to this challenge from the United States. You know, and we're all conscious, or maybe there's more consciousness that the East Asian countries, I mean, industrial strategy went out of fashion in the USA and the UK, and, and indeed EU to, to an extent that isn't widely understood. So industrial strategy very much out of fashion in the West, but it never went away in East Asia, you know, and Korea and Taiwan had huge success by this kind of muscular industrial strategy. And then you see the immediate threat, as it's perceived as a threat of China, which is kind of using these kinds of policies on a continental scale. So suddenly the world looks a very different place and arguments that looked a little bit cranky five, 10 years ago suddenly start to look different. So, you know, we do talk about the new Washington consensus. So it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. It will indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, as I was sure that it would be. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We gather our hands and hope for the best, but only a fool would let the world just spin. The Received Wisdom podcast is edited by Edward Wysanen, and produced with help from the Shapira Design Lab at the University of Michigan. We would love it if you would subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platforms. You can also find all the recordings, transcripts, and links to the books, articles, and other stuff we discuss in this episode at our website, thereceivedwisdom.org. That's thereceivedwisdom, one word, dot org. Talk to you soon. <laughs>